I'm Kyle Massa. My family and I have been coming to Crosspoint since the summer of 2017. Um, today we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 through 21 in the CSB translation. Uh, so let's hear God's word. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of this, so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all. So those who, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on, then we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, but reconcile to God, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. It was a long one. Sorry. A um, little bit unconventional this morning. Uh, we're in the middle of what we call Mission Month, so a number of different mission organizations or ministries that we're associated with. We kind of have a local, uh, regional, national, and then international focus sort of groups within our uh, team. So you're going to hear from the international partnership we have this week. Uh, it's the Ethnos 360 team. So they were here, if you've been here for a period of time, the LeBlancs, the DeValves, and the Ames family. They were here a couple of years ago when we very first kicked this off before they moved over there. Um, and so they have, in the last two years, um, they've built an airstrip in this Kuyu people group, very remote, out in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. Uh, they've then moved in there with their families. Uh, they've begun learning the language. They're creating an alphabet. I think they're going to share a little bit of an update on that because there is no written uh, documentation of this language anywhere. Um, so they're working on that, and ultimately their goal is then to learn the language at a level where they can they can translate the Bible. And so, again, unconventional. We don't typically do these like video um, messages pre-recorded, but um, just to, about the only way that we're going to hear from them literally halfway around the world. Uh, so yeah, hope you enjoy this, and uh, I think we're all good. Cue that up. Thank you. Hey, Crosspoint. Thank you guys so much for all of your support over these past six months of us being in Kuyu. Um, it has been a wild ride so far, and we are just so grateful for the ways that you've practically supported us through um, packages and um, just reaching out with messages. 
And also just all the prayer we know that you guys are doing and the support. It's just been incredibly life-giving to us, honestly, out here as we kind of plug away uh, out here in Kuyo. Yeah, so we got here in early December and we started off right away just getting into learning their language and culture and building relationships with the people. Um, so yeah, we just try to do life alongside with them. We go to the garden, cook with them, uh, eat with them. And so for us ladies, we do homeschool in the morning and in the afternoons we do most of our language learning and just getting out and being with the people. And the guys, they go out first thing in the morning and they're doing things like hunt, going on hikes or hunting or gardening or learning how they build their houses. And they also do lots of time in the office just processing sharing information that they've gotten throughout the day so yeah we're grateful to be here although um, it's not easy we see how much darkness these people are in and yeah just lots of high highs and low lows lots of sickness lots of death um, and just all the beliefs surrounding um, basically why bad things happen or why people are sick um, and not being able to quite fully have those conversations yet is really hard and so we feel like we're constantly living in that tension of like loving them, absorbing as much culture and language as we can, but it is really hard just being in the midst of a lot of darkness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then on the practical side of things too, um, we face like some interesting challenges just being out in the middle of the jungle. Um, all of our supplies have to come in through the helicopter, which comes about once a month. And that can be, I mean, it's obviously a huge blessing when it comes. It brings us all our food, but it can be for sure challenging having to kind of map out what we need two weeks in advance and then you know there's back and forth like oh we don't have this or we have this and so food is definitely kind of a stressful thing I feel like but um yeah. we've had a big growth curve and learning how to like figure it all out and um yeah we're all obviously still eating and we're doing good yeah. <laughs> thanks thankful for co-workers yeah, so yeah. I can buy all flour yeah. eggs I have butter <laughs> Um, yeah, so right now we feel like we have a lot of momentum um, just with where our team is at. We had evals a couple months ago to gauge all of our language progress. Um, the guys are finishing up uh, the Kuyu alphabet and the grammatical write-up um, of the Kuyu language, which is really exciting. And so we're still plugging away, still just um, being with the people as much as possible, absorbing all that we can, and but really excited about what's coming up, um, hopefully not too far in the future. Yeah, so once again, we just want to say thank you so much for your guys' support. Um, we have felt so loved by you guys, and we definitely couldn't be out here without you guys um, holding the ropes for us. So we just want to say we really appreciate you guys and um, yeah, just all the ways you've encouraged us. And um, just a few prayer requests. Um, our family is in two weeks for heading back to the States for our home assignment, our furlough for. Um, so we'll be there for a year. And then also the LeBlancs and the Valves have evals coming up in a few months from now. And so you could pray for that, just that they would continue to build relationships and um, continue to learn the language. Um, yeah, and just for lots of, there are lots of sickness going around in the, um, here. And yeah, if you could just be praying for the QU people. Thank you. Hey, Crosspoint, we are so excited to be with you guys this morning. You've already heard an update on Kuyu from the ladies, and us guys are going to continue our series on The Harvest is Plentiful, church planting locally and globally. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Today we're going to talk about being an ambassador of Christ in church planting, 
An ambassador is someone who specifically and intentionally goes out and represents someone or something. And in our case, we have the best news ever to represent. So again, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. Us guys will split up this passage and we'll dive into our first section. This is Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. And he spent a lot of time in Corinth because it was a very strategic location. There was a lot of economic strategy going on. Um, and in this letter, he's responding to a lot of things that came up as a result of his first letter. So let me go ahead and read it for us. I'll be reading out of the NLT version. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11 says, Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. God knows we're sincere, and I hope you know this too. Are we commending ourselves to you again? No, we're giving you a reason to be proud of us, so you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than a sincere heart. If it seems we are crazy, it's to bring glory to God. And if we're in our right minds, it's for your benefit. Verse 14, either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. So Paul, he's speaking to believers in this passage to the church in Corinth. And the first part here, he's saying that as believers, we ought to be persuading others towards Christ. And then the middle section, he gives a defense for his ministry as well as his first letter before closing this section by saying that Christ's love controls us. And so therefore, we too have died to our old life. And so looking closer at verse 11, it says, Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. In some of the more literal versions, um, like the ESV, it says, therefore, which should automatically turn our eyes to what Paul just said. What he said was that everyone, apostles included, will stand before God and give an account for what he or she has done. And while the world is trying to water down the fear and wrath of God, Paul is putting it front and center as one of the primary drivers for his ministry. Paul works knowing that God will scrutinize everything he says and does. It's the fear of God that determines Paul to persuade others about their lostness without God and the abundant joy that we're able to have in Christ. And Paul's persuasion here, it's not a deceitful kind of persuasion, but honest, tactful persuasion. It's not like Disneyland or Disney World, you know, when you walk past the churro stand and they have like these hidden secret machines that are like pumping extra churro smell. And man, it gets me every time. I don't care how expensive the churro is, like 10 bucks, like sign me up. I need that churro. It's not like that. Paul is um, intentionally and tactfully persuading others towards Christ. And it's not as one who just scatters the seed and hope that something comes up. No, it's intentionally preparing the soil. Now here in Kuyu, we have years of soil preparation before we're able to share the good news of Christ. And the reason for that is that the people out here are just inundated with God's spirits, animistic traditions and rituals. 
and they're constantly adopting and um, obtaining new stories and it kind of leads to like a trial and error theology where they try something out for a little bit, doesn't work for them, they kind of toss it out. For example, we've had a lot of deaths recently in the village and they're all hard, but one of the hardest parts is watching the families try to pick up the pieces and trying to figure out what mistake they had made that led to this death, whether it was a mistake within their marriage or their family or between a different clan or whether it was a mistake in how they carried out a certain ritual. And meanwhile, the rest of the people are trying to, they're hearing new stories and they're trying to do everything they can to defend themselves against heartache and hardship and they're just trying to live comfortably. So as church planners, as ambassadors of God, someone who has specifically been sent out with a message to represent God, there are no shortcuts in discipleship. For example, if we were to present the gospel today, everyone in the village would unanimously accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. However, we would see little to no change in their daily lives. As a result, they would just take these new truths and they would mix them in with their old truths or maybe they like the name of this better and so they just tack it on to what they've already been doing. And it will inevitably just lead to disappointment when the next death occurs. And as a result, it will just lead to the dismissal of such truths in search of a new God that'll just eliminate their problems. So pray for us when you think of us that we would faithfully spend the time to prepare the soil so that we can learn their culture and their language accurately so that we can um, clearly present the gospel but not mix anything, just displace their current worldview and replace it with truth, a biblical worldview. Just as Paul trusted in the merits of the gospel alone, would we too just trust that the word of God would penetrate their hearts and bring them to truth and life. And so moving on in verses 12 and 13, Paul's basically saying, are we bragging to you? No, we're just giving you a reason to support this ministry, to be proud of this ministry that you support. Um, and Paul's giving them a new way to interpret things so that they can defend his ministry against potential detractors. In verse 13, Paul responds to charges that he was actually mad or crazy in his first letter. Um, he wrote with really strong and emotional language, calling out sin, and some people thought that he was mad or crazy. But actually, later in the book, this book, in the second letter to the Corinthian church, he actually regretted writing in such a strong way the moment that he wrote the letter. But it was all for a purpose, to call out, rebuke sin, and bring those people back into the fold. He's more restrained in this letter, and he assures them that whether he's mad or crazy, it's all for the church's benefit. So, so far, Paul says that as believers, because of our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we ought to be persuading others towards Christ. And he also gave a defense for his ministry of whether he was crazy or insane or in his right mind. Either way, it was for the church's benefit that they would be brought back. So in verse 14, it says, Either way, Christ's love controls us. And this isn't like a robotic, control-your-every-thought, puppet-like control, but rather just being in awe of God 
how could we not be compelled to walk in a manner worthy of that which we have been called? It was the love of Christ that kept Paul from living for himself, and rather, he poured out his life for others, suffering incredible hardship, but he knew that it was worth it. And for us out here, it's not our love for the Kuyu people that keeps us here. It's not the reason that we came here. It's Christ's love for his people and his future church that we are here. And knowing what God has done for us in our lives, we too ought to persuade others. And so some days it's not hard. It Sometimes it is hard to love the Kuyu people. I feel like a like a two-year-old most of the time. I fall down the trails. I speak like a two-year-old. I can't cut a coconut properly. It's just hard, and it sometimes they're hard to love, but Christ's love is what controls us and keeps us here. And then in 14b, it says, Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have died to our old life. Christ's death, it wasn't just for the Jews. It was for all. It was for everyone male, female, free, slave, Jew, Gentile. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone or all will be saved. Those who choose to deny Christ choose to remain in condemnation. Therefore, the benefits of Christ's death is only for believers. And since we believe that Christ died for all, we have also died to our old life. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I love a quote by John Piper. It says, If you believe in Christ, if you follow God, your life will be hard. Your risks will be high, but your joy will be full. And we've never seen this to be more true than in our lives right now. We've had to leave family behind. We've had to make a lot of hard decisions to get here and to stay here. We've felt intense spiritual warfare. We've been medevaced out of the bush twice now. But our joy has been incomparable. He alone is worthy. Moving on to verse 15, it says, He died for everyone so that those who will receive this new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. The purpose of Christ's death wasn't so that you could live a comfortable life. Christ died so that you will no longer live for yourself, the complete opposite. Instead, the gift of redemption requires that we change the way that we live. We no longer need to please others. We can work for an audience of one. We no longer need to be slaves to our sin. We can live freely. We no longer need to live comfortable lives. We can risk our lives and leverage them for the greatest cause of all time. There are billions of people living in complete darkness, and we have all of the resources necessary to help bring them to life. Yet, only 3% of all the missionaries in the world work amongst these unreached peoples. Yes, some are called to go and some are called to stay, but I think that the church has lost part of its primary mission So today, if you've never experienced the joy of Christ, please talk to a pastor. They would love to explain more to you. And if you have experienced Christ, he wants to use you. Think and pray about how you are to be involved in God's great commission, both locally 
and globally, as senders but also as goers. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, we are praying that God would raise up some of you to be laborers and bring this good news to the ends of the world. Good morning, Cross Point Church. Um, super thrilled to be with you here this morning. Uh, we're just going to dive right in and pick up right where Michael left off. So verse 16, it says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Why is, why is Paul saying this? Why is he saying we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh? Well, if we go back into what Michael just preached through, it's, it's in verse 14 here. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. When somebody dies, uh, a dead body or a corpse, you no longer regard that person according to the flesh. They've moved on. They've they've moved into something else. You regard them differently. And so if we have trusted in Christ, then it is as if we have died with Christ on the cross. A very often overlooked aspect of Christianity, it's not just about the resurrection. Christ had to die before he could be resurrected. And it's the same with us. When we trust in Christ, we die with him before we can be raised again to new life. And why are we raised again to new life? It's so that we live for him and not for ourselves. And we're going to unpack that. Or rather, Paul's going to unpack that and we're going to look at it. Um, in verse 17, it goes on to say, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. A really awesome, awesome verse here. A new creation, or it could also say a new creature. And so what is he getting at here? We often talk about in uh, Christian circles that we are a new creation. It's kind of this buzzword, but what does it really mean? Um, so when Christ died and he was uh, resurrected, he was given his glorified body, his imperishable, uh, his imperishable body. We, of course, don't have that, right? When we trust in Christ, we don't get a new body. We're a new creation in a different way. We receive the Holy Spirit, who is the promise and the guarantee of that resurrected body that we will get. In the future. It's this awesome guarantee and it's this awesome thing. And, and, and here's one of the points here that we should tease out a bit is that whether or not you realize it, as a follower of Christ, you are a new creation. Jesus died to make you a new creation, to give you that Holy Spirit so that, remember, you don't live for yourself, but that you live for Christ. That's why you are made a new creation. And so as we're talking about church planting, I think it's important to uh, be clear what our definition is. What is a church? If we're planting a church, what is a church? Well, first of all, I think Paul makes it very clear that a church is a body of new creatures or new creations. Um, lots of times when we say the word church, we think of a church building, but, but we know it's, it's people, but what type of people? It's new creation people. It's people filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. And that's what we're working towards as church planters is it's not our job to make new creations, but to provide the message and then let the Holy Spirit do the work. So reflect on that. Think about that. You are, whether you realize it or not, a new creation with the God of the universe dwelling inside of you. He goes on to say in verse 17, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Right? Our old nature who can only live for itself. 
before we received Christ and the Holy Spirit, we could only live for ourselves. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we are freed up so that we are able to live for Christ. That's what freedom in Christ actually means. Not that we're free to do whatever we want, but that we're free. We actually have the ability to live for Christ, which is awesome, a really awesome truth. Now, verse 18 it says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. All this is from God. Of course it's from God, right? Uh, he's the only one that could do these things. He's the only one that could reconcile us to himself. He's the only one that could give us the Holy Spirit. He's the only one that could die on the cross for the sins of the whole world. He's the only one that could uh, give us a glorified body. Uh, so, of course, all this is from God. We couldn't do any of this ourselves. And it says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So there's the word reconciled. The rest of this passage is really going to hinge on that word reconciled or reconciliation. So what does that mean? Let's make sure we define our terms well. Reconciled means to restore to a right relationship. Now, I'm sure we're all aware that before we trusted in Christ, we were not in a right relationship with God, right? All throughout history, you can see how man has turned their back on God. And we have well, uh, we uh, as well have turned our backs on God. And so we are not in a right relationship with him. And time and time again, God would be right and he would be just to just destroy us, to get rid of us, to punish us for what we've done. But God actually made a way through his son. I mean, it says through Christ, it's two words, but we know how crazy that was, how crazy that love was that God demonstrated to reconcile us to himself, to restore that relationship. He didn't have to. He didn't have to uh, condemn his son on the cross. He didn't have to be separated from his son. He didn't have to pour out his wrath on his son. He would have been right just to destroy us, but he decided to do that. He chose to do that. He loves us. So he did that. It's incredible what he did to reconcile us to himself. But now going on, catch this in verse 18. Through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Did you catch that? Who does he give this ministry to? He gives it to us. To us. He doesn't give it to the angels. He's not just keeping it for himself. It's not just him reconciling um, the world to himself. He's given us a part in this ministry as well. It's crazy. I mean, I mean, it says, it's a little bit confusing. It says, through Christ reconciled us to himself. So it kind of seems like reconciliation is God's work. But then it goes on to say, and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. So what does he mean there? Well, verse 19 unpacks that. It says, that is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Again, this short little sentence, but just crazy, the love that's packed into that sentence. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So there you go. It's God's ultimate job to do the ultimate reconciliation, but it is our job to bring that message to people, meaning Christ is the only one who could die on the cross. He's the only one who paid that price and could have or whatever. He's the only one that could pay that price. He did that already. But how can people believe unless they hear? Well, that message has been given to us. That is the job description of the church. It's not just Paul. It's not just the apostles. It's not just pastors. It's not just missionaries. That is the job description for the church. And I'm just getting that straight out of Scripture. A church is a body of new creatures filled with the Holy Spirit with the job description of being ministers 
of reconciliation, telling the message of what God has done to reconcile the world to himself. That is what church planting is all about. And he's, listen to the language here. It says, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. It's incredible when you stop to think about it, why God chose to include humans in what he's doing. Think about it. He is reconciling the world to himself. What he's doing in India and Asia and South America, all over the world, he's entrusted part of that ministry to us. And we play a pivotal role. I can't explain to you exactly why God chose to use us, but it is the job he's given to us. And so will we take that seriously? In verse 20, it goes on to say, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. There's a good title for what our job description is. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. As ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors are someone who goes to a different land to give a message. Not the message of himself, but the message of the one who sent him. And that's what we are supposed to do. That is our job description as a new creation as a new creature. That's why we've been made a new creation. Not living for ourselves and living for him means that we take up this mantle, means that we take up this job description, that we become ambassadors for him, that we become ministers of this reconciliation. And so what I want to do uh, in closing is I want to paint a picture for you of what how we often view church. Um, <clears throat> I like to think of a big dark sea, just can't see the end of it, and people drowning all over the place, and Jesus is in a life raft, and he's pulling people into the boat, saving them. He saved me, he saved you, we're on the boat, and we get onto the boat, and we're thankful, we're super happy, but quickly we go to the end of, other end of the boat. Jesus is on one end saving people, we go to the other end, and uh, we're super happy, we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we praise this uh, God who just saved us? So we start singing songs, right? We're singing songs, and we're singing to the top of our lungs. We're, we are super um, <clears throat> uh, genuine, and we, we are so thankful for what Jesus has done. Um, but meanwhile, Jesus is still on the other end of the boat saying, Hey, hey, come help me. Like, there's more people in the water. Come, come help me. That's why I saved you, so that you can help me save more. But we're kind of like, well, yeah, okay, we hear you, but, but like, we're kind of comfortable in the boat now. So uh, we start making up programs, right, in the church. Uh, maybe we... Uh, come up with a really good VBS, or um, <clears throat> we have uh, uh, we go to prayer meetings, or whatever it is that we do inside of the church. Meanwhile, Jesus is still yelling, yelling at us, "Hey, hey come help me! Like, j just come, come be with me. I'll show you how to how to bring people into the boat. Just come be with me. That's why you're here." But we get comfortable where we're at. We're singing every Sunday. Usually, we're at work doing whatever we're doing, trying to be a. a faithful example whatever that means or um but we're on our end of the boat busy trying to figure out how we can attract people into the church or something like that meanwhile jesus is saying hey come down with me i'm saving people i'm going to show you i'm going to help you that's why you're on the boat and i have to stay in the boat and make programs and all this stuff come help me so often that is how we treat our salvation we don't realize that we're new creatures, given the ability to work alongside of Christ, with Christ. <laughs> we don't realize, we, we just turn a blind eye to all the people who are still drowning in the ocean. And we get comfortable in the boat, 
That's so often how we behave in church, myself included. I, I know I'm like that. Um, all Christ wants to do is bring us under the boat so that we can bring more people onto the boat. That's why we're on the boat. And to bring the illustration a little bit further, there are some people who get pulled under the boat, and yeah, they turn around and they start pulling people up. And then there's other uh, others of us, uh, like ourselves, who have seen people who are drowning way, 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 way far away where there are no lifeboats. And so we ask Jesus for permission to take one of the lifeboats and to go off to that faraway place and start pulling people up on the boat in that in that place where there is no one over there to uh, to help them <coughs> or to or to share this um, message of reconciliation. So that's really the only difference for what we're doing is we've just gone to a faraway place. But the bottom line is we are all called to be ministers of reconciliation. And so this is what I want to challenge um, you with as I close uh, my section here is, first of all, do you realize that you are a new creation? You're not the same. Uh, before, when you didn't trust Christ, you are not the same as you were back then. You have the Holy Spirit. You are a new creature. You are guaranteed a new body when everything is said and done. But are you living that? Are you living as if you were a new creation? Are you living for yourself still? Or are you living for Christ? And secondly, are you a minister of reconciliation? Whatever it is, whatever your main thing is, uh, whether it's your job, whether you're uh, a farmer or a teacher, or if you're a stay-at-home mom, I want you to think of what your main thing is. I want you to think that the people that you interact with, what would they say about you? What's the first thing that they would say about you? Would they look at you a mother as a mother first or as a minister of reconciliation? Would they look at you as a teacher first or a minister of reconciliation? Would they look at you as a farmer first or a minister of reconciliation? Our first job description our most important job description is that we are ambassadors for Christ. And so I want to challenge you, wherever you find yourself, that main thing that you do, that main arena of your influence or sphere of influence, I want you to think of how can you be an ambassador for Christ there? How can God use you there to pull more people onto the boat? Because that is why Christ has saved us, so that we can be ambassadors for him. Hey, uh, good morning, Crosspoint. Um, I'm Jonathan. Uh, for those of you, we haven't met you guys yet. Really looking forward to uh, getting to meet you guys sometime this next year on our first home assignment. Um, but you, you guys have already heard from Michael and then Jacob and now me. Uh, so enough of the intros. Let's just hop right into uh, this passage in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, super meaningful passage um, as we just kind of see our role as the church in God's um, game plan. Um, so I actually purposely requested, hey guys, can I have just verse 21? Because there's enough to unpack there that um, is kind of near and dear to my heart. So let, let's jump in. I'm going to read the passage. I'm using uh, New King James Version. Um, you guys can follow along. I just want to, let's, let's talk gospel. That This, gospel, this uh, verse here sums things up very nicely. Let's go back to the Old Testament and make a, a cool connection with an Old Testament. Very short story, but very... Um, very much a foreshadow of things to come as far as God's uh, rescue plan for us. And then just want to touch a little bit uh, at the end there on just what it looks like in, in the context of church planning, what incarnational ministry looks like, especially as Jesus has given us such a great example of that. So, um, all right. So verse 21, go ahead and read with me. Um, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God 
in him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Lots of, lots of pronouns in this verse here. So let's be clear exactly who we're talking about. Uh, for he, that's God the Father, made him, God the Son, or Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in, in God. Um, Jacob's already covered this back there in, in verse 18, but let's, let's, talk, let's talk gospel. Um, how, do, how has God reconciled the world to himself? There's this huge gape, glaring problem that's been with us all along, and that's, that's a sin problem, right? We, we feel it, we experience it, we've inherited it from our, from our parents. Uh, we see it all the way back in Genesis, Adam and Eve. It's just this glaring sin problem that's followed throughout all of history. And God, according to his plan, has uh, made it to where his plan for reconciliation was actually going to involve, involve himself. Uh, his most beloved son, who they've always had perfect relationship with, him, the son, and the Holy Spirit, this, this beautiful triune God that we get to know and serve. From the beginning of time, he determined that he was actually going to send his son, and through his son, he was going to reconcile the world back to himself. And effectively today, okay, so that's a past historical event, right? 2,000 years ago, this actually happened. It's not just a story of faith allegory, some metaphor that was being used. No, it's a physical, historical person, Jesus Christ, actually accomplished these things. <clears throat> so today, these things are still being accomplished. It's still effectively through Jesus, and yet by God's design, he's choosing to do it through his church. That's, that, that's how we have become the ministers of reconciliation, and we've been given the word of reconciliation, all the stuff that I think Jacob just covered. Um, so as we continue through here, um, we see practically we as the church get to be the, the hands and feet. And, and remembering, too, that uh, forgiveness isn't just some passive, like, dismissive, sweep it under the rug, like kind of like maybe we do with each other sometimes, like, oh, I forgive you. And there's really no consequence. There's really no specific payment that needed to happen. But in the case of the gospel, we see, we see God's character and kind of the the dichotomy of God's character. You see, we talk a lot about God's love and grace and goodness and kindness and graciousness. It's just, it's 100% true. Nothing at all to be taken away from that, and I'm so thankful for it. Um, and yet we also see very clearly throughout Scripture God's holiness and His justice and His righteousness and even His wrath. And it's like, man, are these two different gods or what's, you know, what's going on here? And yet, and yet it's, it's not. It, it, so, so the gospel really comes down to one question, and it's how can God satisfy his own righteous requirements to, in a sense, enable or allow himself to pour out bucket loads, dump truck loads of grace and kindness and graciousness toward us. So again, basically, how can God punish the sin without punishing the sinner? So that's, that's, that's what we see right here in verse 21. He, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Essentially, <laughs> Just thinking of, you know, the little red dots that um, you see in movies and it's like right over the heart and it means that the sniper is about to kill the person or what have you. In a sense, we all have one of these red dots right right here, every one of us. And, and, it's, and God, by his design and by his love, decided to redirect all of those little red dots onto one person. And that was his very own son to where he's since glowing red for all of us, receiving, in a sense, the due punishment for, for all of our sins. Um, so, yes, very free to me, very free to you. Through belief, we can engage and participate and receive this 
amazing forgiveness, and yet super, super, super costly. And he actually became sin for us. This, this great exchange, he becoming sin, us becoming righteous. It's just so unfair, and yet I'm so thankful for it, and I praise God for, for his, his design in, in, in saving us. Um, just to be clear, Jesus was sinless. Nowhere in this verse does it say that Jesus became a, was a sinner or became a sinner. No, he, he, be, he who knew no sin, uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That doesn't mean that he was a sinner. He's just taken on our sinfulness. Um, Galatians 3.13 similarly says that he became a curse for us because, and you can look there if you want, but 3.13 Galatians, um, he became a curse for us because, as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He became sin for us. He became a curse for us. So I just actually want to take this right here, that hanging on a tree, that, that context right there, what Jesus did by dying on the cross. And let's, let's jump back to Numbers 21, uh, back in the Old Testament. A short story um, with, with huge ramifications for, or, or huge foreshadowing of the, this amazing gospel that we're talking about right now. So Numbers 21, let's look back there real quick. I'm just going to kind of summarize it. You can read through it later. Not a new story for anyone, I don't think. But once again, Israel's uh, wandering in the desert, right? Doing the things that Israel does. <laughs> Honestly, the things that I tend to do as well. Uh, a heart of complaining. It says, the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And with this discouragement, right away they start talking out against Moses and speaking against God. Just saying the typical things that the Israelites did. Why did you even take us out of e uh, Egypt? Um, oftentimes they would say, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here in the wilderness to let us die out here? Or all of these very kind of super disrespectful and kind of smack God in the face type comments like, How, you're not a good God. What were you thinking? You must not have thought your plan through or these kind of statements. Complain, complain, complain. Um, sin, right? Essentially is what that is. Basically telling God that he doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, he even called, they even called manna, this amazing thing, this sweet honey wafer type food that God provides them very faithfully every day. Um, they're calling that worthless bread now. So they're, they're forgetting, man, these amazing provisions that God's given them. Um, so, so one principle we see throughout scripture, especially in the Old Testament, is this, this cycle or this pattern where we see sin has consequences and it leads to death. And then we see that God does punish sin. We also see that God makes a way to escape the consequences or the punishment of that sin. But that plan or that way to escape the punishment always has to come from God's own idea or God's plan. It can't just be some, something we think up on our own. That's religion, basically. But no, it needs to come from God's mouth, God's thinking, is this is how you can escape the punishment that you very rightly deserve. All right, so, uh, so far we see the, the sin. Sin as consequences leads to death. God sends fiery serpents amongst them, and a lot of them begin to die. Fiery serpents must have had a painful bite. And, and they were definitely dying. And something to where they uh, realized, wait a second, <laughs> we did it again. They go back to Moses, Moses, please, we've sinned, ask God to take these snakes away. They're killing us, literally killing us. And um, God doesn't take them away, take the snakes away. Uh, but he does tell Moses to do something specific, okay? So sin has consequences, leads to death. Um, God punishes sin. You see the punishment happening. And then you see God making a way to escape the punishment that they rightly deserve. Okay, so, so he told Moses, go ahead and take, um, craft a bronze serpent, put it on a pole and hang it up. And whoever looks at that bronze serpent is going gonna, is gonna to live. 
and something super simple, and and that was God's way to escape it. So you know what? Those who followed that uh, that command or that guidance, they actually were saved and they lived. So, but but one question that kind of maybe I don't maybe it bugs you, maybe it doesn't. Just why why a snake? Why, why are we putting a snake up on a pole? Snakes kind of a I don't like snakes. Most people don't like snakes. Since since the beginning of time, snakes and humans have kind of been at enmity with each other. Um, but he says, take a snake and put it up on a pole and whoever looks at it will live. So, so what's the connection? Let's turn back over to John, uh, three 14, right? John three, John, uh, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, very, very gospel centric conversation going on here. John three sixteen, most well-known verse in the world, probably. Um, and John three fourteen, specifically alludes back to this, this story back in numbers 21. And it says, as, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, right, lifted up this bronze serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again, why, why a snake? Why, why is a snake being lifted? Why not like maybe a little tabernacle or a little replica of the Ten Commandments or, I don't know, a dove? Something pleasant to look at to be saved. But it's actually, they're looking at the, the actual thing that's killing them is what God's asking them to, to look to, to uh, or a representation of that to be saved and to live. So now let's, let's go to, back to 2 Corinthians 5.21, where we read this passage a couple times, but he said, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So what, what has been killing us forever? When I say us, I mean humankind. Uh, since the beginning of time, what has been killing us? And it's, it's, it's sin. Sin has been killing us. And, and we see here where Jesus is lifted up on a pole, just like Moses raised up the bronze serpent in the wilderness. So Jesus actually became sin for us. The very thing that's killing us, Jesus became that for us, lifted us was lifted up on a pole, and in looking to him in belief, we can be saved. So kind of a, kind of a cool connection there between the bronze serpent and Jesus, and how he, um, when he was lifted up, is how we too can be saved. Cool. So, and we see here, and I'm going to um, wrap up here pretty quick, but we also see in this passage a thing of Jesus being or, or becoming. Um, it, maybe not the purposeful thrust of this passage, but I think it's worth, when we start talking about church planning, the importance of incarnational ministry. Jesus was born as a human, 100% human, into the world as a Jew, he spent 30 years growing up as a Jew, doing Jewish things. He very much knew the culture. He knew the language, if not languages. Definitely Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek. He very much knew their heart languages. He was able to communicate in them. And then he started his ministry when he was officially started when he was around 30. And, and as church planners, aren't we, aren't we about engaging people at the worldview level? One of the biggest dangers is to just start teaching truth without really knowing our, our audience. Um, like for us right now to just start teaching here in Kuyu where we don't know their language, their heart language well. We don't know their culture very well at all. And for us to just start speaking truth, there, there's potentially some value in that, but there's some real danger too in the sense that it's just human nature to take, especially here, I would say, to just take one more thing and add it to your belief system. I have an animistic belief system. I have a folk religion belief system. Oh, let's take some of this, whatever these missionaries are telling us, I'm gonna add it to that shelf as well. It's gonna be part of my belief system now. And it's just this kind of messy compilation of, um, of beliefs that uh, can 
actually almost be more dangerous because really there's no worldview shift. There's no change or essentially repentance that's happening there where their, whatever their current worldview is, it's not effectively being displaced by a biblical worldview. So it's cool to see Jesus giving us that example as he does in pretty much anything. He tells us to love. He first loved us. He tells us to forgive. Oh, forgive as I forgave you. Um, he wants us to go be ministers of reconciliation. Well, you know what? He's the greatest missionary of all time. He left the best place in the world, heaven, came to, came to earth, became one of us in every sense, felt our pain, felt our suffering, and, and, and took on uh, what we couldn't do for ourselves. So, so no surprise, but a cool example of Jesus uh, incarnationally becoming one of us. In, in the States, it can even be maybe a little, in some ways, easier because we already speak English or... We already kind of know our American culture, but in some ways trickier too, because sometimes it's hard to even dissect ourselves. What is our culture saying and what is the Bible saying? And it can be easy to kind of confuse those things and not really be clearly teaching truth when we can be kind of clouded by our own culture and those kind of things. So engaging at the worldview level, taking the time, caring enough, loving people enough to engage them at the worldview level and, and targeting a worldview shift, not just some syncretistic thing where you're just adding to a belief system. No, you're actually displacing whatever that current belief system is with the biblical worldview. So, hey, super short, um, love, love this passage, love the gospel, uh, love God. We're, we're excited about what he's going to do through us. Um, we see our weaknesses very regularly, and we're thankful that he is always promised to be with us. Um, and that ultimately he accomplishes anything that he requires or commands of his church and he can get um, the glory for that. So, hey, we look forward to you as the Ames family getting to see you guys sometime this next year. Thank you so much for the huge support you guys have been to us, our whole team already. And we're excited to actually be in the saddle and, and moving forward here uh, with God's work amongst the Kuyu. I want to reiterate what they said a little bit today, but... Um, for those of us who are in Christ, thanks be to God that um, Jesus hung on that tree, that he took our sin. Uh, for those that aren't, feel free to grab somebody that you came with, somebody that you've seen up here on stage today. I'm sure they would be happy to explain any questions or try to explain any questions you have or walk with you in that. Uh, in Christ, we are the righteousness of God. We are a new creation. We are ambassadors for Christ, and we have the ministry of reconciliation. So I just uh, pray that this week, you would go out with that in mind. I'm going to close with uh, the scripture that Dave actually read at the beginning because it's a promise uh, to those that are in Christ. So, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.